My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Bang. <laughs> Mike Green, bang. Yeah, cheers. And welcome to the Post Credit Pod. We have a very special episode today because we're going to be dealing with something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is Star Wars, which is my version of how Eric feels about Batman. Like, definitely the big bro crush vibe. Well said. That. But before we get into that, some major news and, and some major TV series coming to a close very recently. And that is, first of all, George Miller's long-rumored, long-awaited, whatever you want to call it, Mad Max Furiosa prequel has been cast. We got Anya Taylor-Joy slotting into Charlize Theron's role as a young Furiosa. She was one of the actresses we mentioned along with Jodie Comer a few months ago when we were talking about what our sources had told us about what they might be doing for this Furiosa prequel. We got Chris Hemsworth in an unknown role, and we've got Yaya, and I apologize because I'm absolutely butchering this guy's name, um, Abdul Mateen II. Uh, he in a mystery role as well. You know him from Watchmen, from uh, Black Manta in, in Aquaman. He's in the upcoming fourth Matrix movie. Like, this is a dude seriously on the come up. So those are three heavy... He, uh, he, plays, he plays the founder of the Black Panthers in the upcoming trial of the Chicago 7. Another... So an Aaron Sorkin movie. This guy's killing it. I went through his films for the last... He's only been in the game for about three or four years. I know, he's like a and New York rise. And the projects he's ripped off is unbelievable. It starts with The Greatest Showman. He He's in Us as well. I mean, this dude... Oh, yeah. Serious business. This dude is serious, serious business. And just to on him real quick, it makes me bummed out that DC played their Yaha card with... Manta or Mantis. I don't know what his name is, but Black Manta, yeah. And that is one of the coolest characters in that film for sure. So like now we want him as John Stewart. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a huge problem because that's a that's a bad I mean, it showed foresight from them to cast him in that role, but not enough foresight to see where he is now, which yeah. is at 34, going into his prime. Um, has mm-hmm. rattled off. Oh, he's starting in uh Candyman, too. I mean, this is a guy who is rattling off action, drama, horror, starring roles. I mean, serious prospect. I'm all in on this, dude. It's so funny that... Oh, like and Brandon, said. I read that when we talked about this Mad Max on, I don't know, it was a pod maybe a month and a half ago. Go back and check that out, viewers. Just download all of them to be safe. You described Chris, who we thought Chris... Hemsworth may be playing as like the beautiful but scarred face person. I think I read today that that's who Yaha is playing. Okay, so so there were characters. I apologize, I missed that, folks. Uh, uh, th- that's not confirmed. No, folks, always fact check. Yeah, well, no, that's not confirmed. But I saw it in a tweet um, from someone I trust. I forget who. I wish I wrote it down. But yeah, go ahead, Brie. I'm wondering then if that's the case. Is Yaya? the good guy and Chris Hemsworth is the, is the bad guy. That would be, I know you would love that because you were sort of, you weren't as hot on Hemsworth as I am. I think. I, that, I love Hemsworth. Just, I wasn't as hot as Hemsworth over Hardy. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that this is sort of the type of turn that we would want to see from him, right? Show us that he is more in his bag of tricks than just being outrageously handsome and square-jawed and good comedic timing. This gives him a chance to... Go ahead. Did you see bad times at the El Royale? Yeah, and he's weird in that. But he's this good, sounds, man. yeah, he's he's very good in that. Um, I don't think that that's the type of role we're gonna see here. Oh no, no, it's if gonna it's, be way grandiose. If it's anything like uh, what's his name, Morton Joe? What was his name, Mortimer Joe? I forget in his Mort- name. In Morton Joe. Yeah, in Morton Joe. You know, so if he's the one hunting Furiosa down, or the one that she's in conflict with, I'm all for that. I think inverting expectations and having the angelic-looking Chris Hemsworth as the villain of this film is really smart. I think it's a really good opportunity for him. And I think it's just another unexpected little twist that makes George Miller's approach to filmmaking interesting. Now let's talk about him. He is currently 75 years old. Yes, he is. Uh, I don't know when, because this came from... Deadline, right? I didn't, I don't know if it said when they're going to start to film. Hopefully 2021, but when are they going to film Thor? What's nice about this is that they're going to be in the middle of nowhere. So I'm sure like the workaround of COVID, you know, except for the crew, won't be as hard, right? Once they're out there, they're out there. And they shot Fury Road in Australia. So I'm sure Hemsworth is like dope. I don't have to go anywhere. But the fact that this guy is still railing off this type of high octane project at this age to me is incredible and i would doubt him but as he proved with the last one this guy clearly still has it um he also made happy feet and i just love that he's capable of making both as i said to you on the last pod and i'm gonna gloat here oh and he made babe right yeah yeah, and he also made babe great what the fuck this guy is on some shit (laughs) seriously he's Um, amazing no, that's awesome. That's incredible yeah. that he could swing between these two extremes. On When we talked about this on that past pod, I said that I think that this could be just as good, if not better. This was before it was known that Yaha or Yaya was... I think it's um, Yaya. I think that's the pr- correct... Yaya was attached to the role. You didn't think so. Are you changing your mind now? I, I can't change my mind sight unseen because I think Fury Road... And like Terminator 2 and Die Hard are maybe the three best action movies ever made. And I'm just not, I can't say like, yeah, this is going to be better than that just based on this. But those three names are really talented. They're a cool direction for the film. And the fact that we're even getting a follow-up, even though it's a prequel, is just great. Because uh, Fury Road was was phenomenal, but it didn't crack 400 million worldwide. So there was always a, a question of whether or not it would get another movie so the fact that we're getting all that it's just all good news well i think that that fury road success solved the very problem that it faced because like that is the only mad max that i've seen and i'm sure there's a lot of people like me who that was the first and only mad max they've seen so the brand to people of my age is now built in so they don't have to resell it i could almost guarantee that this will cross that half a billion dollar mark you got to go back and see some of the other Mad Maxes. I yeah, it's on, Gibson, but it's, it's on um, Netflix right now. And I've thought about it a few times, but for me, it's hard when something's older than 1985, 80, it's tough for me. It I is. agree. And I, and I hate to say that because I'm especially with like how much you and I have to keep up with because of our jobs, yeah. going that far backwards to me is just such a, 
big task. Hey, one of these Go days ahead. we should do a pod where we just watch like classic movies like a Mad Max or some, yeah. something of that nature. And we talk about like, hey, we've never seen this before. And everyone makes fun of us because we've never, you've never seen so-and-so. And we yeah. finally talk about it. That gives me the perfect chance to watch it because I do want to. And then I feel like we should definitely touch on who's set to star in this film, Anya Taylor-Joy who sort of like Yaya, she's just 24 and she has been on an ascent for the last, I think the first time I saw her was in The Witch yeah, in uh, 2015. And then she's gone on to star in Peaky Blinders and uh, Split and Glass. The New Mutants, unfortunately. The New Mutants. I uh, uh, actually, tomorrow morning for Observer, my review the Queen's of Gambit. The Queen's Gambit, yeah, which is her new Netflix miniseries is going to drop. Be sure to check that out. Shameless plug. Is but it good? Very good. Sh- should I watch it? It's solid. It's it's definitely solid. It's very good. In it. And, and just another piece of evidence that right. suggests to me, like, okay, cool. She's not going to be a problem in this movie. Yeah, so she is, uh, she is on the verge of her star, her star explosion. And this will probably be, be the film that does it. Because if this character, I mean, this is an iconic action character. Now, Charlize Theron's shoes are as big of shoes as you could yeah. possibly have to fill. And they ain't going to cast no scrub to do that. So I think that th- this is going to be what pushes her over into that A-list top tier. I also think structurally, this is one of the coolest developments in recent pop culture history. Because as we've discussed on our Justice League pod, I think, and Batman v Superman, I think the way that they set up Justice League with that, with that email file of videos is the dumbest stupidest, most ham-fisted, haphazard way of setting up prequels and spinoffs and sequels ever. And I think as we've seen in the last 10 years, something like that in terms of like, hey, but wait for the next one has become such a popular storytelling mechanism that it's a real drain on the story at hand. Mad Max is an iconic character that organically set up a character worthy of their own spinoff. Like that wasn't the plan. It just happened because it was so well acted, well written, well put together. And now we're getting a Mad Max movie that probably doesn't have Max in it, which is just an amazing feat in and of itself. Now we're almost guaranteed to find out how she got that claw arm, right? Have to, have to. Like that's a guarantee. Okay. Like, it's going to go full Star Wars. Someone's losing a limb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, uh, wow. Yeah, so I'm souped. Hopefully it all goes well. Um, I read today that Hemsworth is filming Thor 4 starting in March. Hopefully. So that, right. So that means that they're not going to start to film this until the summer, maybe. Um, so let's hope it all goes well from there. But moving from one apocalyptic wasteland to another, although it may be not quite as striking... Season two of The Boys on Amazon finished up recently. And it may, it may not be an apocalyptic wasteland, but, but shit is pretty bad in that world overall, wouldn't you say? Uh, it depends on for who. I mean, I feel like the normal people still don't yet know this shitstorm that's en route their way. We have so much evidence of superheroes absolutely destroying normal people and Vought Company covering it up. That, like, it's been pretty bad there for a while, even if it isn't mainstream yet. I will say that I'm impressed how they used Vought and the soups to tell a story about what's going on in this country right now. Yes. And when we initially talked about the boys a few months ago, uh, one month ago, I said that the first half of the season I was very meh on. 
but the second half I really liked. And obviously that came to a head with the season two finale. Stormfront launching. Spoiler warning, spoiler warning, spoiler warning. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Spoiler warning to anyone who hasn't seen it. Stormfront launching her neo-Nazi campaign to essentially establish Homelander as the new, uh, what is it, Third Reich leader? Fuhrer, whatever the fuck. Yeah, exactly, yes. And just getting her fucking shit laser beamed (laughs) by his son. I I just thought the back three or four episodes really worked for me in terms of this is an outrageous plot that mirrors what's going on in terms of the rise of fascism and touches on the military-industrial complex while also being pretty damn entertaining overall. I felt the same way. I had like let a few build up because it was because the first few definitely didn't hook you in the way that the first season did. You know, the first season they get you immediately and you're hooked. I was low on the first season too. Uh, so I was feeling that way about halfway through season two. But, and I find, and I will be fascinated to see what they do with season three. This show is a show meant to be binge watched. I just have to disagree with you. We've, really? This is the second time we've talked about this. One, I think, we, as we've said, uh, in terms of best business practices, weekly is the way to go with something. Is that the case for all shows, though? Not all shows, no. Especially a show like this that is a superhero show that I don't feel like it gets lost, but I feel like it's not. It, it, it's never been like everyone's talking about the boys right now. Had they let it rip in one weekend, the volume... I actually would disagree with that because there's a great Twitter follow on there at Entertainment Strategy Guy, a former streaming executive who compared uh, third-party viewership data and Google search trend traffic to some of the major shows and essentially found that the boys' weekly strategy sustained engagement and interest for a lot longer than anticipated. So it was a a really cool deep dive that like illuminated me on some of the finer points of that release strategy. And he even acknowledges this doesn't work for every show, but I think because there is so much blood, gore and pulpy violence drama, this actually does work as a weekly release where we don't get so burnt out on what is a really nihilistic, disgusting world. Yeah, I'm sure I, that is a good point in the sense that I'm sure watching this in one sitting would be draining. But I do find since they backloaded this season with all of the biggest plot points, yeah, uh, the death of Butcher's wife and the death of Stormfront. and um, I love Aya Cash, by the way, who played. Yeah, she was time. great. She was. She was great. Um, Kids got powers. Oh, how the how the heads were being. Oh yeah, with blown the up. They saved all of the big reveals for episode. What, what is that? Eight. Not sparsing those out across the entire season gave it that slow feel that we both felt in the first half. But these last two episodes, between in episode seven, where it was sort of like the boys' own version of the red wedding in that courtroom scene. From that point forward, it's just a 110 miles per hour sprint. So I think if you forget the business side of it, and just from a consumer standpoint, I would have preferred to be able to watch the show at my own pace. That's not to say that two wasn't good. I think it ended on probably a higher note than season one did. And I think the way that it teased where it's going from here is fascinating. Like, like let the gloves really come off now, right? Like now, like from this point forward is... There's no more pretending that the soups are the good guys. And it's so funny in terms of setting up what's coming. Anthony Starr, who plays Homelander, said 
that his character will be in a complete homicidal maniac in season three. And I was like, oh yeah, because he's been such a barrel of laughs so far. Yeah, but that's my point, right? Like now the gloves are off. Like now there's probably not even going to be pretending. Like he could become a villain next season, full stop. I hope he does. But at the same time, he loves the adulation. He loves the cheering crowds. He loves the ego stroking. I'm wondering if becoming a dictator enhances that or he doesn't like it as much. Does he get off more on the cheers and adulation or the fear? So you're saying to quote Michael Scott, you want them to fear how much they love him. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> listen, anytime you can quote Michael Scott, go for it, especially on this pod. I'm just, I'm curious of how they handle that for his character. Cause I think that's, that's interesting. I think he is the most interesting element of the entire show. By a mile. And it's crazy because this dude is 44 and he's coming out of nowhere. And he is. He was on so- um, Outlander. I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. It was, um, it was a popular-ish show. But I mean, it's to the point where no, like... Banshee, this, that was it. Oh, Banshee, okay. I think that he should be getting some love at the Emmys. I really do. I mean, this guy is... The, he's pretty much the lead. He's playing an unhinged lunatic whose pure rage is just boiling right beneath the surface. Like, he is able to put on that true sociopathic I'm a normal guy smile while still having these extreme almost genocidal feelings and he, it's all and, and you could see it all at once burning in his eyeballs I mean it's an incredible performance it really he is. is Superman if Superman was raised by Donald Trump spot on and I also just adding like to to his just general impressiveness He's from New Zealand, and like he is giving these Shakespearean violent monologues in a perfect, pitch perfect, you know, all good Americana accent. Yeah, it's incredible. He really is great. Now, do we think that there's any chance that he get gets the nomination? No way, right? I don't think so. But his performance has, I would say, permeated more of the critical community than I would have previously expected. Like people are like, Anthony Starr is really good. In this it, uh, yeah. If prime was smart, which they clearly are, the boys is probably the biggest show they have. Why this not? Is, this is easily their flagship series. The marvelous Miss Maisel is still huge, but in terms of like third party viewership metrics, the boys is their stranger things. They're next. Right. So given the, the entire tone of both the character and the show, they can make a very subversive, viral marketing campaign for him um they already you already saw them do it with the with the hilarious tweet that you retweeted going back to the controversy quote unquote around the weekly release they got review bombed by angry fans who who gave it one star because they wanted to binge it all at once and they just made the most hysterical video that borrowed a scene from season two in which homelander is basically scrolling through like reviews and and tweets about how crappy he is and he's just getting increasingly more pissed off but instead they superimposed all the one-star reviews of the boys and that was just a very clever self-aware marketing tip that they could absolutely do for anthony Starr. before we move on i'm lower on the boys than the average person i'm lower because i don't think it's as nearly as subversive as they think it is. I think it's kind of Deadpool 0.5. And I don't necessarily think that the gore and nonstop nihilistic violence sustains the story at all times, but I do still enjoy it. 
I'm curious as someone who is a bigger fan, is there anything you'd like to like change? Is there any major flaw that you think they could improve upon? I think they teased it in the season finale. I would love to see more of that like girl power team up. I mean, it's, it's a show called the boys, but that one scene where Maeve and uh, Starlight and Kamiko all kicked the shit out of Stormfront That's awesome. was one of the more thrilling parts of the entire season, if not the entire show. And I think that because of the voice that this show has honed in its two seasons, it could... All right, ready? And this is somewhat hot takey, but the sort of girl power team up in the endgame Act 3 battle comes off as sort of disingenuous to me. I agree completely. They totally have the heroes, and it took them work to get there to do that, and all credit in the world to them. But that specific moment was clearly built in for the rah-rah-ness of it, and it was cheap to me. This version of the three of them ganging up to beat the hell out of this Nazi felt organic. It felt legitimate. Yep. Um, and it was thrilling. We know that they aren't going to just give us some corny shit for corny shit's sake. Right. So I would like them to use that trust to give us more of those women hero team-up scenes. Unfortunately, we, we got a ways to go before the boys season three because of COVID, because of the natural weight. That's just going to be unfortunate. One thing we don't have much longer to wait for, Eric, and that is season two of The Mandalorian, a return to a galaxy far, far away. Even as someone who wasn't a huge, huge fan of The Mandalorian season one, I'm so excited to go be going back to Star Wars. You're giving me a look. I, well, you just need to explain more how and why that could be, because I thought that this was consensus, one of the best Star Wars things since the original three films. Yeah, so again, I, I'm someone who, who is not purposely taking the contrarian point of view. And I did enjoy The Mandalorian, but if it wasn't Star Wars, I wouldn't have enjoyed it nearly as much. And I think the main reason is because it, it's ultimately thin writing. I love Jon Favreau. I just don't think necessarily the script writing element is his strongest uh, attribute. And because I'm not a fan of the episodic weekly structure of the show. I'm more of a fan of serialized dramas that have kind of elements that carry over specifically from one episode to the other. Uh, I'm really excited because as we've talked about on this pod, when the season two trailer dropped, I think they are going in a more serialized uh, direction for season two. So that's what I'm really looking forward to. What about the trailer suggests to you that they're now leaning into something that they only flirted with in the first season. Show me the one whose safety deemed such destruction. You must reunite it with its own kind. Where? This you must determine. The songs of eons past tell of battles between Mandalore the Great and an order of sorcerers called Jedi. You expect me to search the galaxy and deliver this creature to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way. So in the trailer, we know the voiceover basically says that he has to bring Baby Yoda back to his own kind. And we don't have any knowledge, George Lucas made this intentionally so, of Yoda's species and what they're all about, where they're from, why they live so long. 
So that's a huge plot element that I think is going to take several episodes to delve into and tie into the Jedi mythos. And on top of that, we also know that Giancarlo Esposito's Moff Gideon is going to play a much bigger role in season two. And having an actual overarching bad guy for the whole run also suggests to me that we're more long-form storytelling than individual chapters. Now, tell, tell me this before we dive into our season one recap. This takes place five years after the events of Return of the Jedi, correct? So, correct. Where, so where are the Jedi currently? So right now, what, we, what is probably the case is that Luke is somewhere in the galaxy recruiting Force-sensitive youngins to restart the Jedi Order. We don't know specifically where. And also, again, because the expanded universe is now non-canon under Disney, we don't know exactly what's going on. I, I can't say that I've read every single Star Wars comic to fill in the blanks. Right. But from, from my knowledge, we're not entirely sure where he is, but that's what he's doing. He's recruiting young Jedi to restart the Jedi Order. Because I find it odd that despite the fact that a Jedi just defeated Palpatine in the timeline, that Mando doesn't seem to know who Jedi are. Like, I, that sort of timeline confusion. I but they've also essentially been extinct for about 30 years from the Revenge of the Sith purge. Okay. And the Empire ran a massive propaganda campaign where they destroyed every piece of evidence of the Jedi's existence. They put out propaganda that, like, Force-sensitive people weren't real and things of, of that nature. So there also has been this essential galactic brainwashing to erase their cultural okay. footprint. Gotcha. Now, that I think realistically, it'd be harder to do when people who are still alive would be like, I saw those guys. Like, I know <laughs> for a fact. <laughs> yeah, right, guys. yeah. But for the purposes of the show, I, I can kind of get it. Gotcha, okay. Now, because Mando season two is about two and a half weeks away, Eric and I decided that we were going to do these piece-by-piece piece recap and reviews of Mando season one. And today we're starting with episode one and two. Like Eric said, this is five years after the fall of the Empire. So we immediately open on this kind of lawless world. It's, it's very chaotic. Even though the Rebellion won, there's clearly not like a huge power structure in place. And we see that as the Mando is kind of planet hopping in terms of the violence that we see from planets and the fact that there's no centralized monetary like money system going on. It's just complete chaos. And I love how it opens in such a classic Western motif. Saloon, bad guys, people looking for trouble. I mean, I think that's such a strong way to start too, right? Because it lets you know exactly that this ain't your daddy's Star Wars. This is going to be different. And way, The action is way more kinetic. And violent. He cuts a guy in half with a steel door. That was awesome. And you're just like, okay, I'm in. Um, it's and a great... everyone in the bar was like, oh, cool, another Tuesday. It's a great... <laughs> It's a great way to set the tone of not just the show, but the, the character itself. It's like, this world is darker and this dude is a badass. And to prove that, obviously what we see is that he whoops some space alien butt. And then he essentially goes up to this blue guy. I'm not even going to begin to try and pronounce his species name, but he's hilariously played by Horatio Sanz who's a famous S SNL player. Oh my God, yeah, I never funny. realized that. And essentially what we realize and establish very quickly in this world is that he is a badass bounty hunter. This guy is his bounty. He's taken him back to his ship. And in doing so, they get attacked by this subterranean ice monster. 
and it's a very first glimpse at how the budget. Yeah, th- this is the continuation <laughs> of blockbuster television and kind of the biggest scale series in terms of what they're able to do on screen. And I compare this to something like The Hobbit or another like big budget uh, uh, movie like Mortal Engines in terms of their rendering of CGI. And just right off the bat, you're like, okay, The Mandalorian is operating on such a different scale than your typical CGI $100 million blockbuster. Yeah, I mean, it feels more movie-esque than any TV show I've ever seen. Now, I get that that has to do with a lot of my prior feelings about Star Wars and what it is and how, to me, it sort of means like the apex of like blockbuster popcorn (laughs) fare. So in that first scene, they lay out the tone. Then they lay out scope and ambition. the character, and then they lay out, right, the scope, the fact that no pennies are being pinched. Um, the, and I want to talk about how they get to the visuals a little bit later when we talk about episode two, because this is groundbreaking stuff behind the scenes that feeds into everything we're, we're talking about and are going to mention. Yeah, so just in terms of how you want to open a Star Wars show... These two scenes of a, uh, are sort of a one-two punch that set the tone for what's to come. And me rewatch. This is the first time I've rewatched it since they came out. And having lowered my expectations a little bit, I find myself already enjoying it quite a bit more and being really able to appreciate some of the things like, holy shit, that's the best-looking space monster attacking a ship I've ever seen. In Star Wars probably as well, right? So, And what is cool about that, so... They've now, like you said, established the tone. This is a, a very cool, lawless space Western. They've basically explained what the character is, what he does, and how much money is going into it. To move the plot along, they very efficiently return to whatever planet he came from, and essentially he goes to his employer as a bounty hunter and was like, what you got? I'm strapped for cash. I'm trying to make that Skrilla, homie. <laughs> and this guy's like, okay, I got a super secret series. A wonderful, having the time of his life, Carl Weathers. Yes. And if we really want to talk about who's having the time of their life, Carl Weathers hooks him up with Werner Herzog. Oh. I mean, this is like getting Alfred Hitchcock to direct a Marvel movie. It's so hilarious and out of place. And bounty hunting is a complicated it's profession. A profession. And so essentially, as all you know from from watching it, Werner Herzog, very mysterious, basically wants him to to go retrieve this asset and can give him like zero pieces of information. This to me is, this, this to me is the, is one of the, the best scenes of the entire season, right? Because I like how you see the dirty stormtroopers. That is such an aesthetic curveball that only further sets up this world is not the Star Wars world that you know. It's so jarring to me, even though, even knowing that it's going to come, seeing what's usually, I mean, when you think of the Empire, you think of pristine hallways and gleaming floors and suits. So to see this sort of worn down, ragtag, almost mercenary group is a cool spin on, on a bad guy that we've now had for 40, 50 years at this point. They're former Imperials who have fallen on tough times, which is, like you said, a very interesting concept. And then Herzog has perhaps... Just chewing scenery. The most Star Wars voice I've ever heard in my life. And guys, for anyone who doesn't know, Werner Herzog is a... Grizzly Man director. Yeah, just an an indie 
filmmaker storyteller and like also like the world's most interesting man like renaissance man yeah for sure everyone go read about him like see interviews of him i mean this dude is so off the wall weird and amazing that to see him in the most commercial franchise of all time it's really great because he he he's in on the joke i think and what's great about him is his quotes about baby yoda are just out of this world how like he couldn't hold back tears because of how beautiful the thing was. And he, um, he basically convinced John Favreau and the whole creative team not to go with CGI and to make yeah. the puppet work because yeah. of how much he loved it, which like, this is a 70-ish year old man. So he in this scene is both at the same time threatening and weird. And then Mando busting out the gun four on one and they're, and they're like, we've got you four on one. He's like, I like those odds. No! Drop your weapons. No, 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 pardon. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to alarm. Uh, this is Dr. Pershing. Please excuse his lack of decorum. His enthusiasm outweighs his discretion. Please lower your blaster. Have them lower theirs first. We have you four to one. I like those odds. And yet Werner never feeling like the situation's out of his control. No, no. As this former Imperial who's now doing whatever. Yeah. Um, so and so right now, this show is throwing 100. They are, in the course of 15 minutes, have laid out the stakes, the budget, the character, the tone, the villains, the goal. And going into this series, you didn't know what the show was about, right? And then within the you know, this scene, all right, he's going to find something, someone. Which Werner Herzog says is 50 years old. And as we soon to find out, that is relative. Yeah. So essentially what happens next is he sends him to a a far off planet to retrieve the asset. And the asset is guarded in this heavily fortified and defended compound. And this is such a classic Western homage as well. You know, we have to get in to an impregnable fortress, essentially. And so while he's scoping out the situation, trying to figure out the best angles, this bounty hunter robot, an IG model, which we know from the original trilogy, just waltzes on in there willy-nilly and is like, I have come for the asset, voiced by Taika Waititi, and just starts firing on everybody, which of course spurs the Mandalorian into action. And then we get our first probably truly great action sequence of the season. And it was at this point, and I recall the first time that I watched it, it, it was at this point I was like, is this what this series is going to be? Because while it was thrilling, it hadn't hooked me into the main drama that was going to drive the plot forward. Um, Everything moves quickly in this show, both for better and for worse. So at this point, when, when he starts to steamroll through, I'm like, I was not hooked yet. I was intrigued, but not hooked. Cause I'm like, I don't know if I just want to see a run and gun week in, week out, go blow this shit up, go find this person, go kill this guy type show. Um, but all that said, this just like the uh, CGI scene with that ice fish thing, um, once again, reaffirms that like, they aren't pulling any pennies here. This is this is as Star Wars as you could hope to see in a theater. I mean, this was 
the kind of war elements of Rogue One on the small screen in terms yep. of battle optics. Yep. And I agree with you. Again, I don't think that the writing is super great. So I was impressed yet not hooked on the show. And I also didn't want it to be a constant Houston Rockets run and gun all out offensive. But I was immediately impressed, especially on my rewatch, seeing him take out snipers with a handgun. That's very impressive and hard to pull off for anyone who's played any video game ever. This man is a shooter. Shooter's got to shoot. Yeah, this man is a shooter. And uh, it lets you know, like, all right, he's got the hand-to-hand game and he's got, like, long-range game. This man is not to be fucked with by any means. So while this is going on, there's some very comedic interplay between him and IG in which the IG robot keeps threatening to self-destruct because he can't be taken alive. <laughs> and Mando keeps saying, like, dude, shut up. Like, we're going to figure this out. we got to shoot our way out. And he goes, nope, self-destruct sequence, like, initiating. So that's, that was kind of cool to see this blockbuster action interspersed with a little bit of comedy. And upon my rewatch for the second time, I did think the humor shone through a little bit stronger. I mean, how much of that goes to the fact that we know it's Taika? I mean, maybe for me and you, a lot. But for the average viewer, they're not going to be like, that's Taika Waititi, famed New Zealand director. Right, right, yeah. But he's, and they brilliantly work that into the finale in a way that they turn what's a funny gag in pilot into a heartfelt callback that almost has you on the verge of tears. And obviously plays a role in terms of Mando's relationship with droids as well, which is cool. Right, right, yeah. So as you guys know, long story short, they do kill everybody in a very impressive action sequence. And they discover that the asset is a member of the same species as Yoda. It may be 50 years old, but to us, it's it's basically, what, a one or two-year-old? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that, anything about if babies. that, if that. Well, it can kind of walk. I don't know how, how early babies start walking. Any of my illegitimate children out there, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's twice now that you've said that on this podcast. I got. I got. I feel like uh, I. I feel like you've got uh, some demons that you're trying to reckon with here. But um, Mando is shook immediately. Um, We don't know why. We come to find out that, as he puts it, he was a foundling too. But you hear it in his voice immediately. He's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" I was told that this thing was fifty, and then the IG, in sort of a great. You know, that shows the divide between man and robot. He's like, a matter of fact about the fact. It was like, well, they don't age the same as us, so we got to pop them. And then you hear a gunshot, and then you're like, oh, dude, no way. And then, of course, Mando shoots him, reaches his hand out in, like, a scene that gives me chills now. And then you just see Baby Yoda's little three-pronged paw reach back out, cut to black. Doo-doom, doo-doom, doo-doom. Wait, they said 50 years old. Species age differently. No, we'll bring it in alive. The commission was quite specific. The asset was to be terminated. Just amazing, and I've told you this a few times. This series, and that scene is one of them, is one of the first times that I've understood the Star Wars thing that you love. I got that sort of sense of wonder. Uh, and I think that's the perfect word for it. Wonder of like both the vastness of space and sci-fi 
what Star Wars does best, right, is it's able to tell you a fantastical story and translate it through human feelings. Yeah. It's about three people saving the galaxy. Yeah, it's a hero's journey. But at the same time, they're talking about different species and planets and all this crazy stuff. And Mando, especially since they're using such a stripped down genre like Western, which is an inherently ruminative and still genre, and Love still that. finding a and still finding a way to tell these sort of emotive, grand sci-fi stories is a cocktail for me that I finally drank the Star Wars Kool-Aid, per se. Yeah. I mean, love it or hate it, movies like Logan, a neo-Western, Deadpool, uh, a raunchy R-rated comedy, and Joker, which is a psychological character study, they have kicked open the doors for the superhero genre to essentially co-opt other genres and tell those point of view stories that just happen to have capes and cows. And I do agree to an, to an extent that this is what we're seeing with The Mandalorian. And, and just very specifically to that last scene, he, he kills IG to save the kid. And I know it takes him another episode or so to consciously make the choice to save baby Yoda from these former Imperial po- forces that are clearly up to no good. Right. But whether he knows it or not, he's subconsciously just there made the choice that like, I'm going to take care of this kid. Well, that's why I point out that you could hear it from the second he sees it. You could hear it in his voice that he already is, is concerned with this child's life from the moment he says, wait a minute, I was told that this thing was old. You could already tell that he is, a, dealing with the choice that he is going to go against what he was paid to do. Yeah. And B, what am I going to do now? And just, I just want to go back on, uh, as I said, when they were sort of shooting their way in, how I was concerned as like, to, is this what this show is going to be? The moment Baby Yoda reaches his hand up, I understood what kind of show it was. And I was like, oh, I am so, so in for this. Yeah, I mean, the, the established morally ambiguous badass protecting yep. the the innocent child it's logan you just said it it's logan it's, it's a every yes yeah, i mean it's a western yeah it's a western and it's a beautiful theme that is that will never age you know that's what's nice about westerns they don't age and that is a theme that will always hit home the protector of those around me it's a very primal feeling that we could sort of all tap into and then doing that through the channel of star wars it's a beautiful thing now before we go on to episode two i am a little disappointed that 95 percent of the time it's not pedro pascal in the suit i just wish he was in there a little bit more but i understand you know the logistics of, of not right now now wait let me ask you how shocked were you by this reveal did you see it coming? The way that they kept a lid on it was incredible. So we knew that the the final scene in the premiere was a quote unquote spoiler. They had they had said something of the nature prior to release and was like, oh. yeah, yeah. So everyone on on Twitter was like joking, like, yeah, spoiler to like a sequel to like a forty year old movie where we already know what what happens. I was not expecting Baby Yoda. And for everyone listening, I understand that. His name is the child as of right now, but until they give him a real name, I'm going with Baby Yoda. Yeah, of course. So I, I, I was surprised at what it was, but I was expecting something. Well, because you know the 
context of what that means more than I do. I mean, it's finding another Yoda out yeah, there in the right. world is a big fucking deal. It's only the third one we've ever seen. Okay. Okay. And, and again, George Lucas intentionally for 40 years never revealed any information about the origins of Yoda species. And so to dive into that and answer these and questions is, that Star Wars fans have had. And is he thought of to be the greatest Jedi? He's, he's one of the greatest greatest Jedi who ever lived, like, period. But there's also some deep cuts, especially in the, like, the expanded universe, some of which I'm sure they right. will make into real canon. They're, like, these guys are next level. But Yoda okay. was, too. But, yeah, so off, off the you also have to understand that under Yoda's watch, the Jedi Order was extinguished and a galactic empire of tyranny arose. So, you know, that's that's Is that a... That's an X on his record. Narrative that's acknowledged within the Star Wars universe itself? I, I'm not sure if it's like characters are saying like, oh, yo, Yoda fucked Yoda up. fucked this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like Star Wars, like fans, you know, such as myself will always talk online about the, the hubris of the Jedi was their downfall. Okay. If Yoda's the grandmaster at the time and he was blind to a lot of it, then like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta put some of that on him. Gotcha. 900 year old idiot. <laughs> Now, in episode two, it's very interesting because we're still, we're basically getting marooned on this planet for a bit because the Mandalorian comes back to his ship with Baby Yoda after taking a beating, by the way. And essentially Jawas, who we've seen in the original trilogy, have stripped his ship bare of all these parts. And that just sucks for for Mando. And it, it, it is kind of funny in its own way. And so from there, and again, I can't pronounce the name, but Nick Nolte plays a, a species character that is just the best I have spoken. He basically says he's going to help him mediate and negotiate with the Jawas to get, their, to get his stuff back. And what they want is for Mando to go capture the egg of this rhinoceros-like space beast that lives in a cave. And what happens there is Mando gets his ass kicked again. Now, Mando takes a huge beating in these first two episodes. Did you notice that? Yeah, and that is sort of what I mean by this ain't your daddy's Star Wars, right? Like, we've seen our heroes lose, but I don't know if we've seen them, like, physically get obliterated by a mud horn and by... Falling off the Jawa, like... Falling off the Jawa thing. And, so funny. and pretty much as soon as he lands, we sort of skipped a part where... As soon as he lands, he's being tracked and gets attacked by these two sort of creature things who have their own, oh, like, yeah, beeper. Yeah. So, yeah, great point that he's just constantly getting his ass kicked. What is it, Khalil? Queel. Queel, okay. So that time that you're talking about where these two pancake lizards basically almost eat him and, and Queel saves him, Queel reveals that there have been a ton of bounty hunters this way looking for whatever the asset is. And that they all have died. So I wrote down in my notes upon rewatch that I didn't really pick up on. Like, how widespread is the search for the child? How known is the child? Like, what are the plans for the child? Who's looking for him? Are there any good guys looking for him that aren't the Empire? It's very interesting because clearly everyone recognizes this is a powerful asset that we need on our side, whoever that may be. Well, I think our boy Grief... Karga gave out tracking beacons to pretty much everybody, it seems like, at this point, because 
a lot and of as, people know about the child then. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as they hint out in the season two trailer, who are the good guys at this point? They're the, they're the New Republic, but as New Republic. Seen, they have zero control yet. But in the season two trailer, we see that they're hot on his tail too. So you've got bounty hunters and the Empire and the good guys all on his ass when he doesn't even know what he has at this point. Yeah. And furthering that point, as we see when he battles this horned creature, the child is extremely Force-sensitive, which leads you to believe that not only is Yoda's species rare, but they may all be born that way, which makes them arguably, what, the most powerful race in the universe, potentially, if, if every single one of them is just killing it with the Force. And this plays into something about the series that I really enjoy, how we know what the Force is, but they don't. Which is always, I always like to have not, they know, like, they're aware that it's out there. But as the Mando even says, Ma- Mando I'm not sure what happened. Right, exactly. So I always enjoy sort of when we have knowledge that characters don't. Because to put yourself in his spot, right? Like, to be out there with this baby that you just had to save that looked as helpless as possible. And then he just sticks up his little claw. And saves him. And saves his ass. Yeah, I, this show does a great job of setting up what's to come next. Every little scene in these first few propel you into what's to come. So just as he finds the child, right, then he's got to find out where to take him. And where he's finding out where to take him, he finds out he's being hunted. And when he finds out he's being tracked down, he finds out that the child has his power and so on and so forth. On a side note, I felt really bad for the beast that was completely minding its own business, yeah. sleeping in its cage, and then gets its egg stolen from it. It's beaten with a knife in the eye and killed. Like, for yeah. no reason, other than, like, the Jawas are assholes. Yeah, the Jawas. So they were in, what, Return of the Jedi, correct? I, I believe so. I believe we saw them on Tatooine. They might have been in A New Hope. And they're just, what, just pricks? That's their thing? They're just, like, yeah, little, little like, scavenger pricks. <laughs> That's, That's enjoyable. I like thing. that. I like yeah, there that. Were, and there were some good comedic beats from that as well. They will trade all the parts for the best car. I'm not going to trade anything. These are my parts. They stole them from me. You understand this? I mean, long story short, Mando, obviously, with the help of Quill, gets his ship back in working order. He, he's clearly made a friend and an, and an ally in Quill. Again, voiced by Nick Nolte. So we know he's coming back at some point because you don't just get Nick Nolte for, for one episode. Right, right. And he's learned this massively game-changing thing about the child. He understands a little bit more why it's such a prioritized asset. But like you said, he doesn't have the context or information to really make sense and process what's just occurred well when he brings it up to quill quill has said i don't know what it is but i have heard of it so there's the myth the knowledge is out there right he just doesn't have it yet but there is is, but there are rumors of that there are this species that can move things with their mind it's almost as if star wars was made to be on tv right because the way that they're able to world build in this show in ways that they aren't able to do in the films because of three-act structure and time constraints, the way that they're able to parcel out little facts here and there, I think just 
makes for a more rich Star Wars tale. Um, like if it were up to me, I would take a Star Wars show over a Star Wars film at this point. It's world creation is definitely its yeah. best asset. I- I'm still extremely excited for what's to come from Star Wars theatrical blockbusters. I really do think they can deliver. And I- I'm excited because the three live action Star Wars projects that we have confirmed are the Obi-Wan limited series. And Obi-Wan's my favorite character. Which starts to film in March. Yes, and, and is obviously the return of Ewan McGregor, Ewan McGregor. We have the Cassian Andor prequel series, the uh, spy played by Diego Luna in Rogue One, which I know is your favorite. Which Star starts Wars. to film next month. Yes, correct. I, lo- I love the, the little tidbits. Thank you. And we have Taika Waititi's Star Wars movie, which is confirmed to be completely disconnected from the saga. And you and I have talked about this quite a bit. He's a very fresh, unique voice. I even said last December that Disney should do whatever it takes to lock Taika Waititi up to an overall deal. Yes. And why they haven't specifically done that, he's they got will. doing the shadows on FX, which is which is owned by Fox, which is owned by Disney. He's now in both Marvel and Lucasfilm. Like he's essentially, you know, the one becoming their golden boy. Which is, is he really signing cool. on for a three film arc or just unknown? <sighs> Unknown. So that, very okay. interesting what, what could happen there. And, and the fact that they're finally escaping the timeline and locale of the nine film saga is really exciting. Yes, totally agree. And especially with his sort of quirky worldview. Yeah. Which the Star Wars canon is just prime for to be taken a little more. We- just like this leans into its darker sides, leaning into its weirdness, leaning into anything but the direct mainstream path it's been on for the for the last 40 years is a win for for me so the fact that they seem to be branching out outside of what we've come to know from them for all these years is a great sign when i interviewed taika watiti last year before the mandalorian season one i asked him which universe was more rigid in terms of like allowing you to get a little freaky, Marvel or Lucasfilm. And he said, without a doubt, it's Lucasfilm. Like you have a, I, I have a little bit of li- wiggle room for the episodes of The Mandalorian that he directed. That's what he told me. But like, if you don't stay on that track, snipers are going to come for you. That's basically yeah. what he said. But clearly they are opening up the world to allow some more experimentation. I mean, as they saw with Thor Ragnarok, it can work especially in a pre-established formatting way of doing things, you can shake up the formula and really get some gold out of it. Yeah, I mean, in terms of directing talents that you want to have on your side for the next 10 years, this guy is right near the top. He's the man. I can't wait to see uh, his next film, Next Goal Wins. It's about... Uh, Which again, Fox Searchlight under the Disney brand. And it's about a, uh, the American Samoan soccer team. And I've seen the, uh, the doc. The doc is great. Um, who are the last ranked soccer team in the world, I think. Yeah. And it's their story about trying to get into the World Cup. And it's just the most Taika tale ever. The coach is eccentric. Um, so that's going to be awesome. 
Um, is Michael he, Fassbender's in it, which is yeah. Like, which cool where example. where's he been? Love that guy. And like he's doing a comedy now. Like that that Taika has said. I was so shocked at how funny Michael Fassbender is. Yeah. Wow. I can't wait for that. Now is uh, Taika gonna direct any in season two or? I believe. Let's actually check right now. Oh no, he's not. So the season two directors for The Mandalorian are John Favreau, Rick Famu. I apologize. It's <laughs> no. Famu, Famu Yia, but I, again, I apologize. But he directed Dope, which is incredible. Oh, I do like that. Uh, Dave Filoni, who who obviously is a huge voice in Lucasfilm. Bryce Dallas Howard, who who's Ron Howard's daughter, an accomplished actress and filmmaker in her own right. Peyton Reed, who does the Ant-Man films, Robert Rodriguez, who genre fans have known for 30 years, and the one and only Carl Weather. So that's a, that's a strong lineup of director talent. Yeah, can't wait. And so it's interesting that we've talked about the new directions that Star Wars is going, what they're doing with Taika Waititi. The Mandalorian is really the first pivot in that entire push. We're not getting a Taika Waititi movie or new timelines and everything if The Mandalorian isn't, isn't a big success and represents like, hey, we tried a completely new medium and format and it worked. Do you think they knew that this would do as well as, as it's done? I think they expected it to be their flagship series on Disney Plus and it lived up to it. Because I think it's gone past both what I thought it'd be and what they thought it'd be. Like, Baby, Ho- Baby Yoda became such a big hit that you didn't need to watch the show to find out who he was. He was in memes. He was, I think, the most third most tweeted thing in 2019. I think it was something there like There is no way that they knew that it was going to be that big. I don't think There's they knew no Baby Yoda would, would become such a massive meme. And by the way, for every creator and studio person out there, let your your characters and everything be memed and TikToked and everything. Social phenomenon is just free marketing. Yeah, like, for sure. That. Baby Yoda is is probably as big of a newsmaker that Star Wars has had since ever the original trilogy. I mean, like it, it, he permeated so the culture in a way that this franchise had not done during my entire lifetime. He is the ultimate puppy, first of all, because he's a sentient puppy that can lift things with his mind and heal you, <laughs> which is dope. That's and a great way to put it. To your exact point, I have a buddy who just doesn't care about pop culture. He loved Game of Thrones, but like that was it. And he was just so all in on the Mandalorian. And yeah. I've never seen him like this outside of Game of Thrones. So yeah. it really did reach people who otherwise wouldn't give a shit. Yeah, I am hyped for this show. So our next episode, we will be recapping episodes three and four and we will be rewinding to the original trilogy which i'm souped for because you actually know i'm souped for you brandon yeah because that's more more my jam even more so this is your bible this is your bible i wouldn't be doing what i was doing today if it wasn't for star wars and as i've said on this pod and other pods i'm not the biggest mandalorian fan although it's more forgiving the second time around and like the original trilogy is really where you know my big old nerd boner was formed yeah Hell yeah. So I'm going to actually, I think I'm going to re-watch those tonight. See, like, how old were you when you first saw them? Four. And then six, when I kind of more understood that, like, oh, I'm watching movies. Now, were you a conscious person when episode one came out? Like, were you aware of the world? See, I wasn't yet. I, I, again, I was such a big Star Wars fan. Phantom Menace is a terrible movie. But it came out when I was seven years old, and I saw it eight times in theaters. Wow, your poor parents. 
Yes, that is an That's a lot movie. of hours to log watching a shitty movie. Yep, that um, was tough. That was real tough for them. When we, honestly, at a point I never realized until you just said it, I think I might call them both tonight and tell them I love them. Wait, you said seven times, so... I saw, I saw it eight times and I was seven years old. Phantom Menace, hold on, let me Google this runtime real I was quick. Like, it, it was mind-blowing to me. And of course, I've grown up and been like, this is a horrible movie. But so back it's, then, 200, it's two hours and 60 minutes, which is actually not as bad as you would think. 120 plus 16, 136 times eight. Your parents spent a th- 1,088 minutes watching Star Wars The Phantom Man, Menace. I have great parents. They love me. Yes, you do. I um, can't believe how much they love me. Fun fact. So we're going to do the original three this week. When we cover the prequels next week, that'll be the first time I watch uh, Attack of the Clumps from like start to end. Have you seen Attack of the Clumps? I, I don't think I've ever, like I've seen the first scene where they like, where they like, uh, they're in that sort of stadium type thing. It's like, uh, you know, like how like the Romans would, would go to watch that. Um, I don't think I've seen anything else but that part. It's so bad. Yeah, so. It's the worst one of the prequels. Yeah, I'm not excited to be I'm honest with you. Like really, because this is going to be a fun pod for you watching. Again, put yourself in my shoes too. Like a, a momentum killing franchise installment a legacy disrupting franchise installment. Like, I cannot wait for you to see this. Oh my God. And then, you know, the third one is, or yeah, episode yeah, three. Revenge of it's not that bad. That is when I, I first it started. Sucks, but it's the best of the, of the prequels. That was the first time that I was like old enough to get what Star Wars was. I think it was about 11 or 12. And um, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind kind of sweet. And then I went back. Because Phantom Menace, while it's trash, and I don't know how we got on this tangent, but it does have some, still to this day, iconic parts to it. It's got the best lightsaber fight in the entire franchise. Which, and that's, when you're going to Star Wars movies, like, what more do you want than that lightsaber duel? So John Williams' Duel of the Fates. I mean, sometimes I play that when I'm at the gym. Yeah, so there are pieces of it that still last. Um, all right, so yeah, we've got a bunch of Star Ooh. Wars stuff planned for, yeah, for this next month. This. Mando season two premieres on October 30th. So, all right, so we're doing episodes three and four this week, and we're going to look back on the OG three. Then next week, we're going to look back at five and six and the prequels. And then the following episode, we're doing seven and eight, uh, followed by the sequel trilogy rewind and then before mando drops we will be talking with the what's he the editor-in-chief skylar and truth the editor-in-chief of the diz insider guy who knows everything in and out about disney lucasfilm the whole shebang and we'll be doing our star wars draft with him so that'll be a ton of fun all right b Friday. you horny nerd <laughs> You know what? Fair. Very fair description. Oh, shit. All right, pal. Peace.